I want to talk about taking church seriously today because if we're going to be who God has saved us to be, we need to take His church seriously. Now, according to statistics, the adult population in America increased, the adult population in America increased 15% in the 1990s. At the same time, the number of people attending church decreased. In fact, what statistics tell us from the 1990s is this, that the number of people who just come for holidays or just come occasionally increased 92%. In other words, what we have is people in a nation that says it's 85% Christian, which is a very inflated number. We have people who say that they are believers, but they're not belongers. They believe, but they don't want to belong. They, they don't want the accountability or the fellowship or the intimacy or, the, or anything that comes with being an active part of a local church. Now, let me tell you why that's important. You cannot read the New Testament and come to any other conclusion that Christ died for his church, that he loves his church, that we are his bride and he's coming back for us, and that he gave his life for the church. And so to believe and not to belong, or to believe and belong but not be committed to that relationship is inconsistent with the New Testament. You cannot read your Bible and come to the conclusion that I can just do what I want to, live like I want to, come when I want to, and not have to worry about any accountability to anybody. It is a violation of every one of the one another's of Scripture that we are to love one another, to pray for one another, to serve one another, to encourage one another, to be hospitable to one another. It is a violation of the accountability that we need as a body. It is a violation of the very fact that this is where Jesus said, where two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Well, if he's in the midst, I want to be where he is. I want to be a part of what he's a part of. And he died for the church as imperfect as it is. It is still his church. It is still worth being committed to. Now, now we're going to look at Acts chapter 5 today. And this is a timely illustration about the church and why the enemy fights us in so many ways about the church. And why church is important. We have a whole uh, generation of people who are coming up that do not see the importance of being faithful to the church. They want Christ, but they don't want the church. You say, well, I want Christ because he's perfect and he's sinless, but the church is full of hypocrites. Don't worry, we can take one more. Because the people that accuse us of having hypocrites quite honestly, are hypocrites themselves because they don't even live up to the standard that they expect the church to live up to. There's a line in the movie, Facing the Giants. You can't judge someone by their actions and judge yourself by your intentions. Well, I intend to be good. I intend to be what God wants me to be. But you see, God doesn't judge us by our intentions because you can intend to be saved and die lost. You can intend to make a deeper commitment and never make it. 
It is not what you intend to do, but what you do that is what matters. And so in Acts chapter 5, we find this church, which in reality, chapters 2, 3, and 4, is a perfect church. I mean, there's no problems. There's no, there are no issues that they're dealing with. And all of a sudden, Acts chapter 5 explodes on the scenes, and we see that the enemy is out to destroy and to undermine the local church. And this was a local church in Jerusalem. Several thousand people in it by this time. 3,000 had been saved on the day of Pentecost. The Lord had been adding to their number daily those who were being saved. So there could have been anywhere between 3,000 and 5,000 people meeting in this church in Jerusalem. Right on the heels of Pentecost, right on the heels of the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. Things were going well. The book of Acts is a book of beginnings. You see a lot of beginnings. It is the beginning of the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. Not the Holy Spirit around us, but the Holy Spirit in us. It is the beginning, in fact, in this passage we'll read, it's the beginning of the church because it's the first time the word church, ecclesia, the called out ones, is used. It is the beginning of dealing with satanic problems inside the church. Because this is the first mention of a problem. So pick up, if you will, in Acts chapter 5 and verse 1. But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some for the price for themselves and his wife with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And to keep back some of the price of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell dead and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed on an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. And Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door. And they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear, that's the second time you see that in Acts 5. Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard these things. There are three greats in the first part of the book of Acts. There was great power. There was great grace, and there was great fear. The church had great power. The Holy Spirit had come, and Peter preached for 10 minutes, and thousands were saved. There was great power. There was great grace was among them all, is what it says in Acts chapter 4. And now we have great fear. This perfect church was shattered. They had moved from blessings into battles. And we must never delude ourselves into thinking that if we are pursuing God, and if we are singing songs like there is no God like Jehovah, 
Behold, He comes. If we're singing and applauding the fact that God reigns, we must never assume or be presumptuous in any way, shape, or form to think that the enemy is not going to come after us, individually and collectively. He will work to undermine, to divide, to destroy, to confuse. And that's exactly what he does here in the book of Acts. He's not standing by silently going, oh well, I guess I can't do anything about them. You read these first four chapters and they're miraculous. Jesus has reminded them again of the great commission. He has ascended into heaven. 120 have gathered in an upper room and prayed. Everything in the book of Acts is birthed out of prayer. The prayer ministry of a church is its most vital ministry because it is what undergirds and builds the walls and protects the body. And so it was birthed out of prayer. Thousands were saved. They were one in the Spirit. And then you come to chapter 5 and verse 1, and I want you to look at three words. But a man. Satan is always looking for a man or a woman or a young person that he can influence and twist and distort in such a way that it will cause harm to the body of Christ. But a man. Every one of us need to be aware that we are targets and that Satan is looking for a man that he can use. Someone that carnal people might accept, but God would reject. And here's this man, Ananias, who has forgotten already what Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? And in every church, there are people because of a lack of commitment to Christ and a lack of understanding of the times in which we live that Satan can get a foothold into their lives and can in such a way influence them that they not only hurt themselves, but they can harm other people, even the testimony of the church. And so we need to be aware that this perfect church was shattered and we will never have revival until we see sin and spiritual warfare and the battle that we are in the way God sees it. We're in a war for the souls of men, but not only that, we're in a war for our testimony, who we are, how the world sees the church. If the church is viewed upon by the community with skepticism or cynicism or mockery because they think that we don't really live what we say we talk about. They want to know, is it the real deal or are you just playing? Are you pretending? Are you just performing? Or are you really living this out? This church was shattered and we can have meetings and we can sing songs and we can have a refresh conference and we can do all kinds of things. But if our heart is not to say yes to whatever God says yes to and no to whatever God says no to, we will not see a great movement of God. And I, for one, want to see a great movement of God. The times demand it. This world at its worst needs this church at her best. We do not need to present a watered-down version of Christ or the church. We don't need to present something that appeases and applauds but doesn't honor and adore God. We need to be the church that God has called us to be. And so here we have this Christian couple 
They're faithful in Sunday school. They're in church. They put money in the plate when it goes by. Everybody knows them. They're a familiar couple. They probably have been some that have come into the church at Pentecost or in the few days afterwards. And, and they're seeing what's going on in the church. And immediately that old flesh in them begins to rise up. And they think, you know, we want to be somebody in the church. We want to have influence in the church. We want to have some power in the church. We want to have some prestige in the church. And, and, and we think that there's a way that we can do that. And the devil begins to seep in. And he finds in them an open door. It's the door of coveting. Coveting the praise of men. Coveting the applause of men. And so they give in. And they cave in. And they fall under the influence of the devil. Two people, two out of possibly 5,000. And the perfect church is momentarily shattered. It makes me think, and it should make us all understand, that everyone in this church, every member of this church, is accountable to every other member. And that what we do and how we live is important. Because if two could shatter the perfect church, then what could do two, two do here if we let our guard down? And so God has a standard for his church. Look at what Peter says. Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. This was the sin of pretense. The sin of pretense or hypocrisy. You've not lied to men, but to God. You see, the moment we pretend, you need to write this down, the moment we pretend, we lose power. The moment you and I pretend to be something that we're not when we walk into church, we, in fact, lose the power of God in our lives. If it's not real, if it's not who we are, we lose the power and the protection of God in our lives. You see, they desired praise for their generosity. Now, there's another statement that you need to write down. It won't be on the screen. They wanted credit for generosity. They wanted credit for their generosity. But they lacked the faith and discipline to practice generosity. They wanted credit for generosity. But they lack the faith and the discipline to practice it. You see, sometimes Satan slips in and he says, you've done this in your heart. Sometimes Satan slips into our hearts and he says, you want to make sure people feel good about you. You want to make sure people like you. You want to make sure that you impress people with your, your spirituality or with your commitment or with the size of the Bible you carry or, or whatever you do. You want, to, you want to be seen of men. You want to impress men. But we don't have the faith or the discipline to be the real deal. And so it's easier to play act and to pretend. It's easier to put on a mask and a show than it is to live the life that we say when we're at church we're living. It's easier for us to sin in our hearts because sin in our hearts doesn't look like sin out there in the world. We kind of know about the sin in the world. 
That's all those bad people that do all those bad things. You know, we define sin as something you do that I don't do that I don't approve of. That's the way the church has defined sin a lot of times. Oh, it's all those bad, it's all those sinners out there in the world. And we forget that sin is birthed in the heart. Six times in Matthew 5, Jesus says, You have heard it said unto you, but I say unto you. And he deals with murder and he deals with other sins. And he says, what you've heard is, you've heard it said unto you that these acts are wrong. But Jesus said, but I say unto you that the very thought of doing it, you've already done the act. You see, it's very easy for us to point fingers and to say, oh, they're out there and they're living in sin. But it may very well be that if we thought we could get away with it, it is in our heart to want to do the same thing. And the very thought that we might want to do the same thing is in fact the sin itself. Because all sin starts in the heart. Coveting and envying and jealousy and, and desires out of control all begin in the heart. We may look pretty good because we don't do that stuff, but what is in our hearts? Are we pretending? Are we, is there a pretense in our life? Are our deeds in our hearts matching up? Or do we pretend with our deeds to be one thing and yet in our hearts we're something else? It's not that this couple gave nothing. I mean, they didn't come to the Generations Pledge campaign and pretend that they were giving something to the campaign and just put a blank envelope in the, in the plate so it would look like they were actually doing something when they didn't. Uh, we had about six people do that in the Generations campaign. It wasn't that they were pretending to be givers. They gave. And it wasn't that God asked them for everything. God didn't ask them for everything. Barnabas had given everything. But God didn't say they had to do it. It said that they sold the property for a certain amount of money and they pretended that what they were giving to the church was all of what they sold it for. And so they were lying to the church. So you've got to back up and see the context. Look at chapter 4 and verse 34. Because in chapter 4 and verse 34, you have an illustration of self-denial. In chapter 5, you have an illustration of selfishness. Chapter 4 and verse 34, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, who was also called Barnabas by the apostles, which translated means son of encouragement, and who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This was their sin. They were guilty of pretending to do the same thing that Barnabas had done. Oh, we've got something to sell. We'll sell it and we'll pretend to be just like Barnabas and these other members. They were pretending that the part was the whole. They were pretending that that little slice of the pie that they gave to God was the whole pie. They were wearing a mask. They were trying to sell a facade. But in the white hot purity of that early church, they couldn't get away with it. Folks, it tells you how much we need a movement of God. It tells you how much we need a work of God. 
that in churches all across this land, including this one, there are people who pretend and they get away with it. But in the white-hot purity of that early church, they couldn't. The facade was gone. The wall was gone. A lie couldn't live in that church. You see, either the couple had to go or the spirit had to go. Either they had to be removed or the spirit would remove himself. The same spirit that had empowered and enlightened and been used by God in them to evangelize, that same spirit now comes in judgment. It shouldn't shock us that they were killed. What should shock us is the purity of that church. That they were so godly and so holy and so righteous. I'm not saying they were weird I'm not saying some of the things that you get in your minds when you think about holiness. I'm saying that they were so much like Jesus that anything that didn't look like Jesus, act like Jesus, function like Jesus, and talk like Jesus couldn't live in that church. That's how pure that church was. And it ought to be our prayer for our church that we are pure like that. You say, well, people won't come. People are attracted to something different. They've got enough hypocritical churches to to choose from. The world is looking for somebody that looks like Jesus. Somebody that gives the the image and the ideal that we are pursuing God with all our hearts. I don't want us... Well, I do. Let Let me just say, I would love for us to be bigger. But not if we're not going to be better. Just to get people to join, to fill seats, is not my intention. Because I think when somebody's saved, they ought to want to get involved and be a part of what God is doing in the church. And the Lord of the harvest is certainly able to bring forth people if we will have laborers in the field and in the harvest. If we would live Jesus, if we would live Jesus in this community, you couldn't find a seat in this church in six weeks. The reason that there are any seats that are empty is a testimony that we have not lived Jesus enough that we can say to the 29 communities that are represented in this church, come and see. Which is what the church was able to do. Come and see what God is doing in our midst. Come and see. You see, we not only need to reach more people we need to be better so that they don't become average Christians that we set a standard for them that our goal is to live blameless before God we can't be sinless but we can be blameless and we can stay current in our confession and of our faith you know I got to thinking about this that Jesus never had a harsh word for prostitutes never did He never said a harsh word about tax collectors. The only time Jesus ever got tough was with the Pharisees and the Sadducees who pretended to love God and didn't. The only people Jesus was tough on was religious people. 
The only people Jesus ever got angry at. Jesus did not go into a bar and bust all the liquor bottles up. He went into the church and turned over the tables where they were materialistic. We think that Jesus hates all those people out there. No, what Jesus hates is hypocrisy inside here. Jesus loves them, and he saved us, and we ought to be better than we are. We are way behind on our sanctification. We are way behind on where we ought to be based on all the sermons we've heard and all the things we experienced. You see, their sin, read it, was not against the church. It was against God. They were trying to cover up their materialism and their coveting. Now, there were three sins that they committed under this sin of pretense. There was coveting, there was pride, and there was idolatry. Coveting, we want to keep a little bit for ourselves. But pretend, pretend, pride, we want people to applaud when we come down and bring our big offering to God. And we want them to to treat us like they treated Joseph, Barnabas. We want them to talk about us like we're great members of the church. Maybe we'll get elected to the finance committee and the personnel committee. Maybe I'll get to be a deacon, you know. If If I can convince them how good I am, maybe I'll get to be really somebody important. And which leads to idolatry. Because idolatry is offering anything to God that is unworthy of Him. Or different from who He is. And so they were guilty of these sins. It's the same sin that Achan committed. Achan committed the sin. He stole the gold. He hid it. And he died. Gehazi in 2 Kings covered up. What he had done, he lied about it, and he was struck with leprosy. These people had been guilty of pretending. Now, the betrayal of the church. This rocked the church. I mean, it just stunned the church because here was a white-hot church of purity. Here was a church that was on fire for God. Mark, we could get the red guitar out, and we could do church on fire because that's what they were. I mean, they were a church on fire for God. They were unashamed of Jesus Christ. And then Ananias and Sapphira. You know what happened, don't you? Just use your sanctified imagination. This Pharisee living on one side of Ananias and Sapphira, who had been rebuked by Jesus because he was a hypocrite, turned to his wife and said, See, those Christians are hypocrites too. They're no better than we are. They're just like us. Uh, They better not show up at my door this Monday night and tell me that I need Jesus because they're just hypocrites. They lie. Boy, if you'll lie in church, you'll lie anywhere. Don't come talk to me about Jesus. Don't come talk to me about my life needing to be changed. I knew church was just a game. I knew this was a joke. You see, not only was the church affected, but the church's witness was temporarily affected because people began to question Is this real? How many more are there like that? Galatians 5, 19 says, The deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarned you, just as I have also forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There are three kinds of sins listed there. First of all, there are sensual sins. 
Galatians 5, 19, the sins of the flesh. The first of all, there's sensual sins. Adultery, impurity of mind, drunkenness, carousing. Then there's idolatry. Idolatry. You see, we, we worship God, we love people, and we use things. But too often we use people, we love self, and we worship things, and we leave God out. Idolatry. And then there are the church sins, the enmities. Somebody always looking for a fight. Strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying. Those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. How many churches? And thank God this is not one of them. But the devil would love it to be one of them. How many churches in this community do the lost people know about the business meetings and the fighting and the fussing and the arguing and the belly aching and the firing preachers and all of that junk? And then we wonder why they sleep in on Sundays. The greatest testimony a church has is unity. And if there's disunity in the church, it's not God causing it. It's man. The greatest testimony we have is Christ's likeness and unity. They'll know that you are Christians because you love one another. The New Translation does not say because you club one another. They know you're Christians because you have love for one another. Unconditional love for one another. You see, here was this couple, they were guilty of sin. By the way, do you know what the word heresy means? The word heresy in the Greek means to make a choice. To choose something that's not true. Our choice today is to make a choice about God. Are we going to choose to live a lie... Are we going to choose the truth? Now look at the things that deter a church. And the bottom line here is very simple. Hypocrisy does not go unnoticed by God. I make and fool you, you make and fool me, we make and fool each other. But hypocrisy does not go unnoticed by God. Judas got 30 pieces of silver and never got to enjoy them. Ananias and Sapphira took a little nest egg out to the side, set aside for their retirement, made sure their pockets were all lined and gave their gift, and they never got to enjoy it. You see, they kept something for themselves, and they never got to spend it on themselves. What have you kept from God for yourself that possibly you may never get to enjoy for yourself. See, this same Holy Spirit who illumines and empowers also burns away the dross and He purifies. The end of the matter is this. All that matters is what God says. And God is always right in His judgments. We, we can wear the mask of adequacy and be inadequate. We can wear a mask of false humility and be filled with pride. We can wear a, wear a mask of commitment to the church and our hearts not be here. Let me ask you, 
Is there anything in our lives today that would line up under this verse? You have not lied to men, but to God. Anybody here lying to God? Anybody here lying about what you say your tithe is? Anybody here lying about what's in your heart when you walk in the doors? You know what we do. We walk in the doors and the greeters meet us. Security people meet us out in the parking lot. Greeters meet us. How you doing today? Great. Super. How are you? Great. Super. Marriage is about to fall apart. Kids are rebellious. Attitude stinks. Just name it. The truth of the matter is, some of us walked in and said, fine, great, good this morning. And there's enough junk in our lives that we know we were lying when we said it. It's always puzzled me that a drunk can go into a bar and tell a bartender he doesn't know everything about his life and we come to church and sit in classes with people we call our friends and we can't be honest with them when we're hurting and when we have needs, when we have problems, when we have fears and when we have anxieties because we're afraid what they're going to think about us. Can I tell you what that is? That is P-R-I-D-E, pride. That's all that is. Oh, I wouldn't want anybody to know that I have needs. Well, if you don't have needs, you're the only one on the planet. I wouldn't even want anybody to know that, that we're hurting. I, I, I wouldn't want to share any, any prayer requests, and so we are dishonest. What needs to happen to us is a great fear come over the church. That the purity of God would be magnified and the glory of God would be exemplified. A great fear, a great reverence for God. That before we ever walk on this campus, before we ever drive our car here, that we've made sure that we are clean before God and right before God, not just on Sundays, but this past week, we have done all we know to do to walk in purity before God, to be blameless before God, to be humble before God. So that our worship is not a pretense. There's a scene in Facing the Giants where Matt Prater is sitting in the stands who's not a believer. And he has a bad relationship with his dad in the movie. And Grant Taylor, the coach, is, sees him sitting up there in the stands and he's watched Matt be disrespectful of his dad on a couple of occasions. So he goes up to him and says, you know, I think you owe more respect to your dad than you show. He said, well, you don't even know my dad. He doesn't even like you. In fact, he wants a different coach. He, he doesn't even think you ought to be coaching this football team. He said, well, that doesn't matter. And he, Grant makes a statement. He says, you cannot judge others by their actions and judge yourself by your intent. You can't judge others by your actions and judge yourself by your intentions. Here's, here's where we've bought a lie and Satan has influenced our lives. Now, folks, this is not just what you thought up. This is what Satan has done in your head. 
well, I intend to be better. God knows my heart. Or if I know my heart, the heart is deceitful and wicked. Who can know it is what the scripture says. Uh, I, I intend to be a good witness. I, I intend to be a godly person. I, I intend to live for Jesus. Uh, I, it's my intent to be more faithful than I am. It's my intent to give more. And you never get around to doing it. And so because you don't get around to doing what God has convicted you that you need to do, you live a facade, a pretense. You wear a mask. You become a hypocrite. And you get so good at it that now you don't even know if that's you or if you're somebody else deep under that layer of protective shield. Let me ask you. Do you have enough fear of God today? Do you have enough fear of God today? To not worry about what anybody thinks. But you've got enough fear of God to get right with Him right now.